last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been studying the little book of Haggai. So if you want to be turning there, again, it's called one of the minor prophets, not because it's minor in insignificance, but it's minor in this sense of it's just as fewer words. But I think that you'll agree with me that Haggai's message was important to the people of Judah and it's important to us today. So hopefully you remember that Haggai was called by God to speak several proclamations to the children of Israel as they had been returning from Babylon. And that's what we've been looking at and we'll continue to do this morning. The first proclamation, just in a quick review, we looked at two weeks ago, gave us the context of what was happening in the lives of the people. It's been 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They now are been released from that captivity. A lot of the people stayed in the land, but some had come back, had been called by God to come back to their land and to rebuild the temple of the Lord. But because of opposition, political opposition, civil opposition, the work had stopped. The people had changed courses and they began building their own houses and their own lives and had kind of forgotten about what God had called them to. So Haggai comes on to this scene at the point with a word of rebuke from the Lord. Look back at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of Haggai. Haggai says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verses following share that God's hand was against them. Because of their disobedience, their harvests suffered because of drought. Although they were working hard, they never had enough. The good life seemed to just be slipping out of their reach. So the focus of this first section was all about priorities. Their priorities were not in alignment with God's priorities. We discussed this, and I don't know about you, but it spoke to me. God wants us to make Him the primary focus of our life. And we always need to regularly be examining that and making sure that that's so in our own personal lives. So the first proclamation was a word of rebuke. In the end, the people did obey. They began working on the temple, and within a week or two, they were busy at work. The situation in chapter 2 that we looked at last week is now that only after a few weeks of working, the people became discouraged. We discussed how their circumstances played into this, being the end of the festival of booths and also coinciding with the festival of ingathering, which was to be a celebration of the harvest, how that probably affected their discouragement because their harvests had been puny. God had not sent the rain. They had drought and famine and their harvest was weak. We also looked at verse 3 of chapter 2, which gives a specific reason why they were discouraged. Let me read that again. Chapter 2, verse 3. Haggai says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What was discouraging them? Well, they were some old people grumbling about the fact that Solomon's temple was way better than this one and how you're spending all this time working and you're really not doing much. You're really not. It's not comparable to the temple that we had before. And this was discouraging. And Haggai comes on to the scene here this time with a word of encouragement from the Lord. We talked about last week how Haggai admonished them to be strong, 
how he admonished them to continue working, and then how he went and told them that they did not have a proper perspective of the past. They didn't have a proper perspective of the present, and they didn't have a proper perspective of the future. And that's what we looked at last week. And basically he was talking about God's presence with them in the past, in the present, in the future. That was what he was reminding them of. And he used the word Almighty God. He used the word the Lord of hosts which we talked about that was the God of all heavens, the armies of heaven and earth, and how he was on their side. Why should they be discouraged? And so we tried to apply that to our lives because we know that many times we struggle with discouragement. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 10, and we're going to see what message of the Lord Haggai brings to the people of Judah today. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, beginning in chapter 2, verse 10. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. So in the first proclamation that Haggai gave, he brought a message of a rebuke. Last week we looked at a message of encouragement. Today, in this one, in this proclamation from the Lord, Haggai delivers. We're going to see a message of concerning holiness, hearts, and hope. That's the way I broke this message down. A message concerning holiness, hearts, and hope. So this message begins, it tells us, on the 24th day of the ninth month. The last one was on the 21st day of the seventh month. So right now, we know the time difference has been just shy of two months since the last message. So the people have been busy working for almost two months since Haggai came and encouraged them. So there's probably been quite a bit of progress, unbroken work for two months. There's probably been a lot of progress made. Now, just like in the previous messages, we aren't told exactly what's going on, but you have to deduce it from the proclamations made by Haggai. That gives us the context. So what is the message this time? This one's a little different than the past. The Lord doesn't get right to the point. He actually tells Haggai to go get a ruling from the priest. God gives him two questions to ask the priest. And you may wonder, why did Haggai have to go ask the priest? Don't you think he could have answered the questions himself? Well, the only answer I can have for that is that that was God's design. When there was a matter that was not covered specifically by the law, they were always to appeal to the priest. Turn back to Deuteronomy 17. 
and we'll see where this comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'll read verses 8 through 11. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, it says, If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall rise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in this case. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict, which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. So as you see here, God has set up a system of justice by which men who were supposed to know the law very well could use the principles set forth in the law to make decisions concerning the law when there wasn't a clear direction. Does that sound familiar? We actually use a similar system today. Our court system is made up of men and women who are supposed to know the law and be familiar with our Constitution, and they're supposed to be there to interpret them when there's matters of unclarity. And if there is a really big issue that's not very clear, it can go all the way to the Supreme Court who has the final verdict. That's where we get our system from this type of principles that God had put up. So that's why he is told, Haggai is told to go to the priest to get an answer on these questions. Now there's a purpose in these questions, which is we're going to look at. And we know, though, that even in their day, that system was corrupted by wicked men. Our day, sometimes it's corrupted by wicked men. But when that system is used properly by godly men using the biblical principles, it works very well. So that's why Haggai did this. He was subject to this himself, and that's where the Lord sends him to get this answers to these questions. It's actually one question. It has two aspects to it. In these questions, Haggai is going to reveal a word from the Lord about holiness. Question number one begins in verse 12. It says, If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, Will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. What's the question talking about? This question is about the meat that was used in sacrifices. When an animal was offered as a sacrifice upon the altar, most of the time the whole animal was used and consumed. But there were occasions where people would take the meat that was left over. And that's where this question arises. If part of that animal was to be kept, to be used, what happened on that occasion when that meat came into contact with other things? That animal was consecrated to the Lord. It was considered holy. So when that came into contact with other things, were they made holy by the contact? The question can be boiled down to this. Is holiness communicated by contact or association? And the answer was no. Coming into contact to that which is holy does not make it holy. Now, why was he telling them this? What was he telling the people of Judah? What were they doing that they thought would make them holy? That's why he's telling them this, because he's trying to make a point. Well, they were in a holy land again, building a holy temple. 
probably surrounded by participating in the altars and sacrifices and doing holy things. So they thought that they were in a holy land doing holy things, rebuilding a holy temple. Look down to verse 17. We'll jump ahead just quickly. In verse 17, he said, I smote you and every work of your hands with blessing, wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Well, I thought last week that we said they did come back to him. I thought in our study then that we learned that they had been rebuked and they started obeying. Why now is Haggai telling them that they did not come back to God? It's been two months since Haggai has brought a message to him. They've been working. They've been obedient. They've been diligent. Is he just rehashing their disobedience from the past? I don't think so. I think God is telling them that they returned to the land. They didn't return to him. One of the first things they did when they returned was set up the altar. They were going through the sacrifices. They were bringing them their offerings. They were expecting God to bless them. But it says he wasn't, still wasn't blessing them. They were engaged in rebuilding the temple. They've been faithfully working. But God now brings a message about holiness not being contagious. Religion is something you do on the outside. The return to obedience was a start, but I think God is telling that there's still something missing. And I think that point is very relevant today. You can go through all the rituals and it doesn't make you holy. Being confirmed, being sprinkled, being baptized, swimming in holy water doesn't make you holy. Going to church, wearing a religious necklace, having religious lawn ornaments. I say that because there's a lot of them in the park where we live. There are many people that think that going to church makes them holy. Giving a lot of money makes them holy. Donating their time to worthy causes makes them holy. But true holiness... First and foremost is a matter of what? The heart. We'll talk more about that later. Let's move on. The answer to question one is no. Coming into contact with something holy does not make it holy. Question two is is in verse 13. Haggai says, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the matter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. So the first question was, if a holy thing touches an unholy thing, will it make the unholy holy? Boy, I got that in. The answer is no. (laughs) The second question is, if an unholy or unclean thing touches these same things, will it make them unholy? The answer is absolutely yes. Holiness is not contagious. You don't get it by being around or coming into contact with something holy. But uncleanness, on the other hand, is contagious. If you went back and studied Leviticus 22, you could read about the instructions given to the children of Israel concerning this. There were specific instructions about touching people who were sick with leprosy, about touching a dead body. The Bible makes it clear that uncleanness or unholiness is communicable or transferable. So we learn from this. Holiness is not communicable. Unholiness is communicable. The conclusion is then that when holy and unholy come into contact, both are made unholy. Now, I realize that this example is taken from the ceremonial law, but it still is somewhat applicable. If I have a clear cup that's filled with crystal clear water, and I take that cup and I pour it into a cup of dirty water, will the dirty water turn clean? I can keep pouring and pouring clean water into that dirty cup, and it might look a little better as it's diluted, but it won't become crystal clear. 
And yet I can take a small amount of dirty brown water and put it in a cup of clean water and just a few drops is going to what? It's going to make it dirty. This is true in the world of medicine. What happens when you take a well child and put them into contact with a sick child? Many times you then have two sick child. You would never say, oh, my son's sick. Let me bring him over here and rub him up against your well child and see if it'll rub off. We would never do that. Although some people do. <laughs> I've seen it happen in the nursery. They bring their sick children in with the well ones. <laughs> it's also true in the moral realm. The liquor and tobacco industry are notorious for giving money to charity. Hollywood occasionally produces a biblical-based movie. Do these good deeds make them clean? This doesn't make them clean. When the clean and the unclean come into contact, the clean usually comes away dirty. That's why we encourage young people to not run with the wrong crowd. Rarely, if ever, will you make them holy. More than likely, the dirty will make you unclean. A couple of verses that verify this. Proverbs 14.7 says to go away from foolish men. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says evil company corrupts good habits. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why are all these scriptures in the Bible? It's because it's about this truth, about unholiness being communicable. So you could apply this principle in many ways. If you watch a filthy movie, you're not going to make the movie holy. But it can make you unclean. We cannot bring unholy things into our lives and think that they won't affect us. They will. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 4.8, many of you have memorized that scripture, but it talks about setting your mind on the things that are true and pure and lovely and are of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. Paul says, meditate therefore on these things. Haggai's message from God this day brings a message about holiness to the people. And I think the reason he did that was because the people of Judah had a misunderstanding about holiness, biblical holiness. And that's what precipitated this message. And I think Christians today sometimes have a misunderstanding about holiness. I think many times we think it's about just living a certain way. Holiness is often thought of as just living morally pure lives. But sadly, if recent polls are any indication, we're not doing much better than the unsaved, as the church-wide, not talking about Lakeside in particular, but the church at large, shows that Incidents of sexual immorality, about divorce rates, pornography use, materialism, racism. When you look at that, many times the church at large is not doing much better than the world. And I believe that this is because many people do not have a correct understanding of biblical holiness. So the question is, what does it mean to be holy? The word actually means what? Set apart. Set apart for a consecrated or holy purpose and we think of that many times as being different from the rest of the world set apart in the sense of being different that's a part of it but it goes much deeper it means to be dedicated to God but it also means that we belong to God God himself you remember what he said to the children of Israel in Exodus 6 7 he said I will be your God and you will be my people Colossians 3.3, Paul tells us that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Biblical holiness describes a relationship, a unique relationship that God has established. It has moral ramifications for sure, but there is a relationship that precedes the behavior. Before we are called to be good, we are called to be holy.
before we are called to be good, we are called to be holy. If we don't understand that, then we reduce holiness to just morality. And let's be honest, there are some very moral people that you know that are not holy. First, one has to be united with Christ in order to be holy. It is through this union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit that we are made holy. One cannot possibly be holy outside of a union with Jesus Christ. I love the verse of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live through the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are so blessed in our day to have the completed Word of God. We don't have to have an incomplete Old Testament view on holiness that reduces it to merely just doing a list or not doing things on the list. That view was never intended by God, but in reality, that's what happens. This is what the Israelites were guilty of. Many, and even still today, are guilty of this. If you study the religions of the world, you'll find that most of them teach if you go through a set of rituals or meet a set of standards or actions or ceremonies, you will be made acceptable to God. Even some of the, quote, Christian churches, by their actions, still put forth this teaching. The Word of God doesn't teach this. Again, what is God most concerned about? The heart. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. After answering the questions about holiness and uncleanness, he said, This people is still unclean. They are in the process of rebuilding the temple. They have been obedient at least for the last few months, yet he says they are unclean. Every work of their hand, he says, is still unclean. Why? Because their hearts aren't right. They were performing the temple activities. They were in process of rebuilding the temple. They are in the Holy Land doing holy things, and yet all their service, all they've done for the Lord, has not been accepted because of their unclean hearts. Their hearts are not right, and therefore their obedience is to no avail. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart, doesn't it? What does Jeremiah 17:9 say about the unredeemed heart? Heart deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Matthew 15:18-20 speaks about how the things that come out of the mouth reveal the heart. This is Jesus himself talking. He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus is saying when we do unholy things, we aren't just acting, we are just acting out our heart's desires. The heart reveals the true condition of the soul. And we can try as hard as we want to to cover it up, to mask it with good works and Bible study and going to church and all kinds of good things that look good on the outside, but if the heart is not right, it's to no avail. I love the word picture that Jesus used when he rebuked the Pharisees of their hypocrisy. They were the perfect picture of someone doing all the right things on the outside. And yet, do you remember what Jesus called them in Matthew 23, 27? He said, you are like what? Whitewashed tombs is the way my Bible described it. Whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but filled with dead people's bones and all sorts of uncleanness. This reminded me of a time back in Kentucky. Now, I don't know how many of you 
are from here, but um, if you're from here, you may not have ever smelt a skunk, but if you're not, you probably have. How many have smelt the smell of a skunk? Oh, good portion of you. Well, we had a skunk spray our dog, and our dog got into the house with this smell. It was awful, and we tried everything. We, you know, everybody said, bathe him in tomato juice. We did that. We had perfume bottles going and stuff burning on the stove. We had everything we could. And all we had was a rotten smell with other smells masked around it. You can put all kinds of perfume on manure and it still stinks. Likewise, a person can try and make themselves acceptable to God by doing all kinds of things, outward things, to cover up but you still stink. You're still unclean. God demands a clean heart. Ultimately, this is the problem and that Haggai is addressing with the people. He tells them in verse 14 that this is your problem. The people, the nation, you're all unclean and all the work you're offering is to no avail because you're still unclean. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is David. David was a great man of God and yet he was very human. I say human in the context of frail, weak, and simple, just like us. And yet, how is he described in Scripture? A man after God's own heart. The description of him was not man's description of him. That was what God said about him. God called him a man after my own heart. That's not a word somebody else made up to say about him. God said that about him. I thought about that a lot. What an amazing statement to have said about you. Isn't this the man that committed adultery? Isn't this the man that committed murder? The man is called a man after God's own heart. These sins didn't happen before he was a follower of Jehovah. They happened after he was a follower of God. He was already crowned king. He was the great spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. Yet in spite of these failures that God knew he would commit, God still said he was a man after his own heart. Why? It wasn't because of his outward appearance, was it? We know that. Do you remember when Samuel went to seek this new king to anoint him the future king? He went to the house of Jesse and he was impressed with several of his older brothers. But God had told Samuel beforehand not to look at the appearance or the height or his stature For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God saw something in David's heart that was pure, sincere, and genuine. It's no coincidence that David went on to write the majority of the Psalms. His passion in the Psalms is so evident in his writings. I think of Psalms like Psalm 42 where he wrote, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants after you. Psalm 51, David wrote, Create in me a clean heart. David had a real sincere longing to please God. He wasn't perfect, but the intent of his heart was pure and he knew how to repent from the heart. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, is that me? If you're like me, your motives are not always completely pure. Sometimes I'm selfish. Sometimes my heart strays. Do you rationalize your sins away or are you honest with yourselves? I think David, having a clean heart, starts with honesty. He admits his failures. He sees himself as he truly is. And we can be like David. We can truly repent. We can get back on track when you have a pure heart. And motives are a central part 
of the message of the heart. I think the Israelites here in Haggai's day, they were submitting in obedience, but not in heart. I think their motives were not right. I think they were tired of working and laboring and not seeing any fruit of their labors. And so they submit. Why? Because they want that to end. They want God to bless them again. They want the rain to be lifted and the drought to go away. I think that was their motive. I don't think they were doing it to please God. So you have to ask yourself, have you ever been guilty of obeying for the wrong reason? I have. I know I have. I've had counselees do this. They come to me with marital problems and I give them counsel from the Word of God and they go home and they do it for a while and then they quit and they come back and I say, why would you quit? And they say, well, it wasn't working. Well, that's what? A pragmatist view, isn't it? I'm only going to do what works. What does God tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 when Paul says we make it our goal to please God whether we're at home or away? He's saying our goal in life is not to make something happen the way we want it to happen. He's saying that's an alternative motive. Our motive should be to do what God wants us to do. And we leave the outcome to Him. That should be the motive. When the Bible says the husbands love their wife the way Christ loves the church, but if I change my behavior to act in a certain way just to get my wife to respond differently, that might be a byproduct of, but if your motive's wrong, you're still not pleasing God. You should please the Lord by your actions and leave the outcome to God. Motives of the heart are a very important ingredient in holiness. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Most of the story centers around the disobedient son who eventually repents and comes home. But there was another son in the story. That part of the story is equally important. Turn forward to Luke chapter 15. I want to read the section concerning the older son. Luke 15, starting in verse 25. Jesus is telling this story. Jesus says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father goes on and tells him that, you know, I care about your son. I care about him, but I also care about you. The word used here when he said, when the older son said, I served you for all these years, the word used there could be rendered slaved. He was saying, I slaved for you. Tells me that it was done in drudgery, not willingly. His whole demeanor is one of selfishness. He was angry. He was jealous. He really didn't care about his brother. He was only concerned about himself. He wanted the same thing his brother did. He was more patient and went about it in a different way. His whole attitude was one of being jealous, angry, and self-centered. Even though he had obeyed, he hadn't done it with a clean and pure heart. In the end, think about this. Which son was more pleasing to God? The one who had been obedient or the one who had sinned, repented, and humbled himself? We know the answer. Being holy is much more than just obeying a set of rules or a standard of morality. That's why an unsaved person can do nothing to please God. 
Even their best works, when the heart is not right, is never acceptable to God because it's not done in faith from a pure heart. I used to get really upset about people who were living an unholy life and they were walking in sin. But as I've matured in my faith, I now have more compassion and I pray for their salvation. We are not after behavior modification in order to get people to act a certain way. We should be praying for a heart change. The heart's what's important. A redeemed heart is what saves a man, not living up to a set of standards. So what have we seen so far? Haggai's brought a message about holiness. He's brought a message about clean hearts. And the next few verses, we'll see a message about hope. Let's look at verses 15 through 19 of chapter 2. Beginning in verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, with hail, and you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on... I will bless you. So we see in these verses that God is reminding them again of their hardship caused by their disobedience. He asked them to consider, to examine what's happened thus far. Before you even started working on the temple, go back and think about this. He gives some specific examples, citing grain yields down 50%. Wine vats were only 40% filled. I thought it was interesting that he gave specific numbers. He didn't just say the yields were down. He said your grain heap was only 50% of what it should have been. Your wine vat was down 60%. I don't think that was news to them. I think somebody had been keeping track of this and calculating it. I think when they returned, they had high hopes and they were counting on a blessing to the point of actually projecting and calculating it out. But God had different plans, as he sometimes does. He reminds them of how he intervened. And again, he was specific. Blasting wind. Some versions say east wind or scorching wind. That would be a dry wind. That's where the rain dried up. He says that he brought a moist wind. That caused mildew and rot in the fields. To top it off, it says God sends hail. First, there was not enough rain. Then there was too much rain. If that wasn't enough, he sent hail. I don't think God wanted there to be any ambiguity in the fact that he visited them in their disobedience. He was reminding them that all this was done to bring their hearts back to him, not to just get them to be obedient. He wanted their hearts. And then he makes them a promise. He brings a message of hope in verse 18 and 19. Again, he asked them to consider something. He asked them, is there still seed in the barn? Now, Bible scholars have different views on this, these two verses. Some think the seed refers to grain, that there's no grain in the barn that the harvest hasn't produced anything, that the grapevines, the fig trees, the pomegranates were all bare and not produced any fruit, but he's saying from this day on God would bless them. Many of them think that he is challenging them to repent when he says consider from this day onward. He's saying repent and watch how I will bless you. You've been working and obeying and the blessing hasn't come because you have done all these things but your heart's not come back to me, but there's hope. Just repent and watch how I will bless you. That's one way of looking at it. 
Others think it refers to seed as in seed for the next sowing season. It hasn't been planted yet. And that they wouldn't know what the next harvest would bring because they haven't had time yet. They haven't even planted the crops. They were to point to the fact that the date spoken of would be around November or December. And they're saying it's not time to plant yet, so the seed would still be in the barn. It isn't time for the grapevines or the fig trees or the pomegranates to show their fruit. So you don't know how the next season will turn out. But he's promising to bless them that the next season will be a good one. Now, regardless of which way you want to interpret these verses, the application doesn't change. He's promising to bless them from now on. Regardless of their past circumstances, whether or not they can see it or not, God is giving them hope. From this day onward, because of your heart-led obedience, I will bless you. And I think there's a lot of application there for us. These verses speak to me that no matter what your past is, no matter how disobedient you've been, God says from this day forward, if you turn your hearts towards me, I will bless you. It doesn't mean that the blessing will be immediate. People of Judah were going to have to wait for the harvest to come in. Money wasn't going to rain from heaven, but the rain that would come from heaven would send them crops. When I think about these, I always think about the Apostle Paul when he said, do you remember what the words in Galatians 6, 9, he says, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if we faint not. I heard someone say once that we have five seasons. We have summer, spring, fall, winter, traditional four seasons, and then we have due season. We have our timing that we desire things, and then God has His timing, His perfect timing. If you ever thought that your blessing wasn't coming, God may be saying, be patient. It takes time for the harvest to come in. Keep planting, keep watering, keep pulling weeds. Don't quit. Keep enduring and God's faithfulness will present itself. He wants to bless us. He wants what's best for us. And He gives us hope. I love the verse in Jeremiah 29:11, where it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So no matter where you are in life, it is not God's desire for you to be miserable. God's desire is for you to have joy, to have peace, but most of all, His desire is for us to be holy, to live a life pleasing to Him, fully devoted to Him, fueled by pure motives, a heart consumed by His grace and love. When we live that way, we live in hope and in His blessing. So in summary, God brought a message about holiness to the people in order that they might get the message about pure hearts. And as a result, might be encouraged and have hope for their future. And that's the message for us. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be set apart, not only in our actions, but more importantly, in our hearts. He wants our hearts to be completely devoted to Him, alone, based on our union and relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of that union, He promises to shower us with abundant blessings now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your message to the people of Judah in Haggai's day. And Father, help us to apply that to our lives. We don't have the same kind of farming culture and the analogies doesn't always fit exactly. But Father, the message is clear. You sometimes put us through things to draw us back to you. Help us to see 
at times clearly when we are going in the wrong direction and we need to turn our hearts back to you. Help us to have a clean and pure heart like David did. Help us to know how to repent and to get back on track. And Father, we know that you have a plan for us. And Father, that even when things are tough, we know that it's all working for our benefit to make us more like your son and to fit us for eternity in heaven. And Father, that gives us great hope. And Father, we just ask that you would help us to be the kind of children, Father, that uh, please you. Sincerity of heart matters. Motives matter. Help us to realize that, to be honest with ourselves, and to live a life that is pleasing to you. These things we ask in your Son's name. Amen.